Davis Monthly from the Davis Vanguard. I'm your host, David Greenwald, and we'll be speaking with Davis Mayor Brett Lee about the issues of the day. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, David. Thanks for having me. So here we are. It's the end of the year, and it feels like we're ending the year the way we started this year. Um, we had a horrible tragedy at the beginning of the year. Now we've had this horrible tragedy at the end of the year. I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. It's not really a public uh, policy issue, but it's a horrible thing. Um, I, I think however you slice up the year, I mean, there's always something to point to. But I, I suppose you're right in some sense that there was a, a murder the very beginning of January last year, a murder of Officer Corona. Um, and then uh, just a couple weeks ago, we had... Uh, what appears to be, uh, you know, a murder and, well, two people killed. And, uh, you know, they guess that's not the greatest way to end the year. Having said that, um, I don't know that they are similar in all respects. But anyway, I, I take your point. There, beginning of the year, there was a, a very public murder. And at the end of the year, two people are uh, dead as well. Well, and if you think about it this way, those are the only two murders we've had this year. Uh, yes. So, I mean, you know, naturally they're a little bit connected. Uh, one is a police officer that was shot and the other is, uh, somebody that was shot by the police. Um, the similarities, uh, pretty much end there, unfortunately, or fortunately, who knows? I would say the, the similarities, uh, we'll obviously discover more. But if you, uh, you know, read the local paper and sort of read kind of what has been released, obviously it appears that there are mental health components to both. So I, I would say that is the thing in my mind that ties things together in the sense that as a community, like many communities or pretty much all communities, you know, mental health issues are very important to address early. And if not addressed early, Things like this can happen. Yeah, and from my understanding, the male involved in this had a very long and troubling history of uh, mental illness and also drug use. So, so those relate to issues that I think, you know, we as a society, um, can't put this on the city, uh, but we as a society don't handle those issues particularly well. There, so I'm not really able to talk about the specifics of the situation um, in large part because I don't know all the details. But I, I can say in general, our society has uh, lots of gaps in terms of caring for those who are struggling. Whether that's financially, with mental health issues, with addiction issues, all sorts of things. It's, uh, you know... Yeah, for every example of uh, sort of somebody who's uh, been really given good care and treatment by the system, there are probably the same number of examples where that isn't the case. And so it's really, uh, I would say it's a, it can be a little bit of a luck of the draw situation in that respect. So I want to move on to some public policy issues. Um, and one thing that I've been looking at um, in the last couple of years, 
is that uh, we have, at least this year, really addressed issues that I would consider more along the lines of brush fires and less along the lines of kind of the core issues. And I'll define that in a second here. Um, so, you know, we talked about things like Pacifico and the respite center and Mace Boulevard and downtown parking and the sales tax. And it seemed like there was kind of this common denominator, maybe less so with the sales tax. Um, although I'll, I'll address that point in a second that these are issues that were kind of, they became really public issues. They became really controversial issues and I felt like not one of them really addressed what are real core issues that are facing the community. And I'm talking about things like fiscal sustainability, housing, affordable housing, economic development, and maybe, you know, we can look at transportation issues along I-80. And, and that's not necessarily, you know, a criticism against the council per se, because after all, I think if you could address the issue of I-80, you probably would try to do that sooner rather than later. And you that's not in your purview. So the only thing that you could do was try to make Mace a little bit better uh, than it was. I get that. But, you know, if you look ahead perhaps to next year, you're going to be dealing with some real big issues probably. Uh, you got the downtown plan. That could become pretty controversial at some point. Um, it's likely or at least possible that the Aggie Research Center or campus is going to come to uh, a vote. You're going to have Measure R renewal. Um, you know, even, even an issue like housing, which has gotten so much traction across the state and last year was the subject of uh, two Measure R votes. Um, there were no major housing projects approved or even considered by the council this year. So it just seems like, uh, for whatever reason, uh, this was a year where you were putting out brush fires rather than dealing with core issues. What do you think? So I suppose that's in the eye of the beholder. I, I would say I disagree. So I think we've been t tackling the big issues. And so it was a little over a year ago. So it was in the fall of 2018 where we signed the MOU with the university. Recently, if you are on Russell Boulevard, you see the substantial construction going on in West Village. You see the substantial construction going on with uh, uh, the Sterling apartment complex. You see some of these projects which we mainly rental projects, but these rental projects which we approved in the past couple of years, I would say that this year we've been shifting gears. We've very, very substantially addressed housing issues surrounding um, in, in our community. We have a less than half percent vacancy rate. We're likely to see about 3,000 new beds or bedrooms, kind of depending on how you count things. Uh, for on the city side and roughly four to 5,000 on the university side becoming available over the next year to two years. And so that's a very substantial, actual tangible thing that the council has done to address some of these affordability issues around housing. 
And so I would say that where you see brush fires, I think that there's this underlying determination to move forward in addressing these issues. We've had discussions about uh, in the background about uh, some of these other housing proposals in terms of mixed uh, use, in terms of affordable percentage requirements, in terms of things like that. So the council's moving forward. And, and some of like the specifics that you mentioned, Pacifico, the Pacifico discussion, I wouldn't say is a brush fire. I would say that the residents nearby complained that they didn't feel like Pacifico was being well run. And so we offered, and we did, we opened it up for requests for proposals. And those proposals could be anything. It could be uh, continue as is with a slightly different management structure. It could be uh, close the facility and rebuild it in a different form or fashion, all sorts of things. So we got a variety of proposals and we've been evaluating them and we haven't made any determination yet. And so I wouldn't consider this really sort of a brush fire. I think it's really a reflection of the city trying to be responsive to what were, what were and are legitimate concerns about how Pacifico is being run. In regards to MACE, um, I think uh, my last month uh, interview with you, I think we talked about this, but I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure we did. Um, the design's not a great design, and there's no need for it to not be a great design. And again, I wouldn't say it's a brush fire, the theme here is if neighbors bring up to us what we believe to be legitimate concerns, and you know we're not the arbiter of what's legitimate or not legitimate, but the, the point being that if a group of people come to us and say, hey, we have real serious concerns about something, and we look into it and we see that, wow, there is something here, uh, we try to improve it. So there have been a variety of those types of things. It's not that a bunch of angry people come down to City Hall and then we sort of react to that. It's people let us know that something is problematic. And so in some of the cases, it's only been like one or two people who have come forward and the city decides to sort of step in and you know see what we can do to help the situation. So I wouldn't really describe this as a reactive brush fire type of thing. I think the underlying theme is we need to listen to the community because we want to do a better job. And in terms of the housing aspect, you've noticed a shift. Uh, a year ago, we've, I would say we started to transition out of the heavy focus on, we need to do something about rental housing, multifamily residential, geared more towards the student sector because UC Davis has been growing. And as part of the partnership with UC Davis, we understand that they need to do their part, but we also need to do our part. We've done a very sizable amount of um, towards that goal. Now we need to figure out how do we make things more affordable for what we kind of like to say uh, is workforce housing, both on the rental side, but also how do we make that possible for people looking to buy their first home or perhaps uh, um, maybe their second home, but, but really, going after the people who are, have been priced out of the for sale market of Davis. So let's start with housing. Sure. Um, one of the big problems that I see, and I, I agree with a lot of what you just said. Um, I, I think the council actually did an admirable job, both in terms of 
uh, finding housing uh, for students that could be built fairly quickly. And they're going to be somewhere between 4,000 and 4,500 beds in town. Plus, and I'll admit I was wrong on this point, um, I thought that it was a mistake uh, to approach the university in an adversarial way that uh, would end up uh, possibly creating animosity. And the reality was that when the city sat down with the university, they actually found common ground and created an MOU, uh, which I think is a very positive thing. And so, you know, I was wrong. I, I, I thought that those kind of talks were going to lead back down the road that had happened before where the university was kind of with a standoff with uh, the city. Um, and so the university, um, you know, they didn't go all the way uh, to where some people wanted uh, with 50% of all housing, uh, all students housed on campus, but they came close. They got to 45% up from 28%. So I thought, you know, between the two, um, that was pretty good. The problem that I think we're now going to have is, in a way, that's kind of low-hanging fruit. How are we going to house workforce? How are we going to house uh, families in, in this community, given the confines, not only of Measure R, but the limited land even on the periphery? Even if we did vote to approve Measure R, there are only limited places that we could actually build at this point. Um, and so I see that as a problem, and I don't think anyone's really discussing it at this point. Well, I would say that the housing is all interconnected at some level. Um, as much as I, I don't like to admit it, uh, building a 3,000-square-foot home and, uh, and you know adding it to the housing mix of Davis in terms of a 3,000-square-foot for-sale unit potentially does impact the overall housing market in Davis. However, um, a 3,000 square foot home is not really the part of the market that we're really trying to address. We're not really trying to address the issue of people with a million dollars looking to buy in a home. What we're trying to do is find folks who are you know, uh, professionals, professional couples looking to buy their first home. What we're looking to address is sort of middle-level employees and perhaps the first three to five years of their employment looking for a place to rent in Davis. And, and really, that's kind of the focus that we've been starting to contemplate. So the reason I mentioned those areas is we need to be very deliberate and specific about what we approve and what we try to promote. So you'll see some information around that and some philosophical sort of wording around the downtown plan about this idea that there are a range of affordabilities. You also see it in our discussions about what we decide to move forward with in terms of any new multifamily residential uh, rental uh, projects that we decide to move forward with, and also the for sale units. Getting back to kind of what you've talked about in terms of low-hanging fruit, right now, the agreement with the university is for every additional sort of uh, each each increment of uh, student growth will be housed on campus. So once these units hit sort of the, the market, if the university decides to grow, 
they will provide an incremental unit on campus to house that person. So that means we are likely to see, depending on the math and the timing of the construction, call it three to 6,000 units in the next couple of years hitting the market. Those students are already here. The university is not growing by three to 6,000 people over the next one to three years. So what's going to happen is a lot of the single family residential units, I would guess, will revert from being sort of a mini dorm. Uh, I'm not sure I like the term, but it kind of conveys what it is, where you have four to eight kids squished into a single family house, which was designed originally for a family. That, that market will change. I believe there will be additional single family homes that will be freed up for actual family types of renters and for actual uh, non-student renters to take advantage of. In addition, as new students come on board and they see that, oh, wow, I can just live on campus, this will free up over time some of the student-occupied apartment complexes in Davis. So while many of the apartments we approved recently have been of the four and five bedroom variety, we have a very large stock of apartment rentals that are in the more traditional two-bedroom to three-bedroom configuration. Those units will become available in a greater, to a greater degree for the people who are non-students because students will have all sorts of different choices that they didn't have before. And yes, absolutely, it would be rare for a traditional sort of family to want to rent a four-bedroom, four-bath apartment. But those four-bedroom, four-bath uh, apartment um, units, they're, they, the people who build these things, they know kind of what the students want. The students want their own bedroom. They want their own bathroom. They want the ease of not having to share necessarily the common sort of cleaning and taking care of certain uh, areas. And so they kind of know what the student of today and tomorrow is going to be looking for. So those types of units will be preferred by many students compared to uh, the apartment model when I was a student, which was squish four people in a two bedroom and you, know, you figure out you know when people take their showers because there was one bathroom and you have four people waiting in line, well, three people waiting in line to use the bathroom. And, and so I think you'll see a shift from the older apartment complexes from some students to these newer by the bed or by the room rental models. The students really like those because one of the biggest problems that they have is what happens when one of their uh, roommates uh, basically shirks their responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it's impossible to get them out. Um, I know so many situations where the landlord eventually just threw up their hands and kicked them all out. And so you had four or five students kicked out because one student wouldn't pay. Um, this way, you know, everybody's responsible for their own rent. They're on their own lease and they have their own space. Um, and, and so, you know, I hear the quote unquote adults in the community complaining about these rentals and they're not talking to the students. The students love the idea and yes, they are a little bit more expensive and, and for some of the students, that's going to be a problem. And so they're probably going to end up splitting rooms and, and, and things like that. But they're doing that anyway. 
yeah, there's also, oh, guess what? I'm going to do my junior year abroad. I'm leaving. And then, oh, okay, well, now we need to find a replacement. And it, it puts the financial risk on the existing housemates. Having been in that situation and also filling in for somebody, being the, on the flip side, filling in for somebody who moved away for a short period of time, being that replacement renter for six months, it, it is complicated. And so just for that financial peace of mind, the, the new model can work for some. So, you know, bottom line, I think the city did a good job of that. Um, where I'm worried about is let's look at like the downtown. Uh, one of the things that I've pushed for several years now is the idea of densification. So you have all these one and two story buildings downtown which is not the most efficient use of finite land space. And so my idea was, hey, you know, we could keep retail on the bottom. We could put office space or flex space above it. And then above that, we can go to residential. And then we put people in the downtown who are then going to become customers and a market for the downtown to improve its business problem with that well the fiscal models suggest that it's not fiscally viable necessarily so how do we get around things like that so i don't know whether i should be pleased or frightened uh, because what you just said really matches what the downtown plan advisory committee uh, is proposing that process is uh, right now we were in the public comment period it's going to come back to the downtown plan advisory committee that are going to make a final set of recommendations. It's going to go to the planning commission and ultimately uh, to the city council. I, as proposed right now, the, the plan, the vision for the downtown is put forward by the downtown plan advisory committee is to go much taller. Uh, we're talking in the neighborhood of six stories tall, uh, at least in the core of the core sort of the, the heart of the downtown. And as you work toward the edges, it sort of steps down to five, four, and down to three stories. So there is a, a vision for densification. There is a vision for ground floor retail or office. And so they match many of the things that you talk, you're talking about. One of the things that I would say is interesting is the financial models do point to the challenges for somebody to take an existing parcel which has a fairly low tax base uh, due to Prop 13, and then invest a fair amount of money to uh, you know, increase the height, the density, and things of that nature. So financially, it may not make sense for some parcels where it may make sense for others. I think the Downtown Plan Advisory Committee has really been trying to figure out the balance in terms of what would an attractive downtown, an appealing downtown look like versus the financial realities that we're operating in today. I take a slightly longer view in that I don't know that we have to create guidelines that cater to this idea that, oh, it has to be financially viable tomorrow in terms of we want to make, so there's this idea has been voiced. Oh, it's not financially viable if you have a height restriction on the edges of downtown of four stories, so it needs to be much higher. Well, 
we want our downtown to be attractive. We also want it to be respectful of the neighborhoods that adjoin downtown. So a lot can change. So financing can change. We're seeing different ideas proposed by the governor in terms of reduced costs around permitting. We're seeing different sort of uh, possible ways of financing some of the, the impact fees. There are, are different things. And so will it make sense for every single parcel holder to change the configuration of their parcel? Probably not. But I think the goal here is not to wake up one morning and see cranes in the downtown and the whole downtown being changed overnight. It's over time to work towards this vision. If we need to fine tune things, if we need to adjust, I think the, the council at that point will probably be open to that. So I don't know that on day one, every landowner in downtown Davis suddenly wakes up like it's uh, Christmas morning and says, hooray, I'm going to make millions of dollars by developing my parcel. I think what we do is we, you know, for some it'll make sense on day one, for others it won't. The key is, do we get work towards that vision in a coherent way that keeps our downtown attractive and desirable? And then I'm going to bring up uh, the fiscal issue, because I think um, the fiscal sustainability for the community is probably my biggest concern, even bigger than housing at this point. And what's really interesting to me is I get this sense that the community really doesn't understand the fiscal condition of the city. And I remember this, you know, back in uh, 2014. Uh, when you guys passed uh, the sales tax and you had done this poll and, you know, the city was running a $5 million uh, structural deficit at that time that the sales tax was going to plug up. And the people polled, two-thirds of them said uh, we were in good or fair fiscal condition. Uh, which seemed to be a huge disconnect. And and the polling numbers are about the same. So when you guys did the polling uh, last uh, spring, you know, most people did not see huge problems. And yet, as you and I both know, there are huge problems in the city. We're about $8 million in the hole every single year on infrastructure needs. And... The only reason that it's not a fiscal emergency, although you declared one, is that um, it, it's it's kind of been taken off budget. And so, you know, it, it's not showing up. You're in the red every single year. And yet we know that there's not enough money to uh, keep up with roads and uh, there's a parks deficit and, you know, there's Greenbelt issues. And it, at this point, in my view, and, and some people will disagree with me, this isn't a spending issue. Um, you know, the city uh, a decade ago, uh, when we were facing the Great Recession, we, we cut back greatly on the number of city employees and we cut back on services and we managed to do more with less. And, and we've held the line for the most part on uh on compensation issues. Um, what we don't have enough of is, is revenue. 
Um, so, you know, every time you do a comparative analysis of sales tax and per capita, um, Davis runs near the bottom, whether it's among college towns or whether it's among, you know, regional towns. Davis does not compare well. Well, and, and the reason is obvious. You know, you, you know, we don't have big strip malls. We don't have malls. We don't have all this retail. And so we're lagging behind. And a few years ago, we came up with this idea. Hey, you know, uh, we don't want a strip mall. We don't want a, a, a big mall that we're going to rely on to generate huge sales tax. But we got this great university, and we're going to use that to leverage economic development. And, you know, it was a good idea, but but it's really languished. And so... I don't know where I'm going with all of this other than to say that, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, you, you've been consistent in uh, raising this concern and it's a, it's a completely valid concern. I would say that for the, for the sake of discussion, we ideally would be spending about $8 million more per year on our infrastructure repair and maintenance program than we currently do. That's a fair number. I might be off by a smidge here or there, but that's a general order of magnitude of kind of the, the underfunding that we currently see. It's a, it's a long-term issue. And one of the things that I've said and been pretty consistent in saying this is I don't believe we should try to make up that $8 million through additional taxes. I think that the size of that could be handled some with additional taxes, but really my preference is for us to be smart about how we grow in terms of encouraging businesses and encouraging sort of uh, tax revenue from new businesses, things like that. So for instance, we should be getting an update on our cannabis revenue. I'm guessing it will be about a million dollars in an additional tax revenue that wasn't there before to, to go towards that $8 million shortfall. We will have a couple new hotels coming online. There's one being um, getting close to completion uh, east of, well, just, uh, just on Mace Boulevard next to Target. It uh, will probably, I would guess, open in the summer. We also have the South Davis Hyatt that's uh, construction began this fall. I'm not sure when it's scheduled to open, but I would guess probably maybe if not the summer, then the following uh, fall. I would expect that we would get about a million dollars in tax revenue from those two entities. So now we're talking about $2 million of tax revenue that didn't exist before, which will help us towards this. In terms of your the idea of uh, economic development, through some additional land and space being allocated to um, sort of a innovation center, for lack of a better uh, term or terms. We asked for proposals. A couple came, uh, three came forward, and um, one sort of stuck around, and then we thought it was going to happen, then it wasn't going to happen. And the, that developer is uh, back before us again stating that they would like to move forward with their project and um, go before the voters in a measure JR vote. 
we're still in the preliminary stages. They need a supplemental EIR. They need to add some specificity to what they're proposing. I think the council is open to ideas and that idea would provide some jobs. It would provide some additional space for business expansion and importantly would provide the city with additional revenue layered on top. And so before when I talked about um, we don't want to increase taxes, this idea, we don't really want to increase taxes on existing residents. I believe that the current sort of tax level that the residents pay, both in terms of the city taxes and the taxes they pay towards the school system, they're fairly substantial. And I'm very, very supportive of the sales tax renewal. And that's a renewal of the tax level that we're already paying today. So the big general question is, how are we going to take care of that, what uh, is described as a shortfall? Importantly, the financial picture of the city improves in the next five to 10 years in terms of pension obligations. Although the state of California and the municipalities that make up the state of California really do face a pension crisis, the city of Davis is in pretty good position compared to where we were um, five or 10 years ago. We've been taking some pretty important steps in maintaining our cost structure. What I find very exciting and which hasn't really been publicized that much is the last employee agreements that we've reached, and we reached these employee agreements with about 80% of our employees, and we're, we're working on the last uh, 20% of our employees right now. But there is a provision in their 2% um, cost of living increase that should our requirement should the public employee re retirement system, PERS, CalPERS, should they require us to contribute more towards pension costs, we are able to reduce that 2% cost of living increase to employees. And so the employees share in some of the risk that the city faces. The flip side is if for some reason CalPERS decides that they don't actually need to collect as much as they thought from us, then the employee will get a little bit of an increase in terms of their cost of living um, allowance. So this is fairly substantial. It's also fairly substantial that the raises that we've negotiated with these employee groups are 2%. It's in the, it wasn't so long ago that the increases were a very unsustainable 5, 10 to 15% level. And so this is a very substantial difference. And with PEPRA, with the pension reform that Jerry Brown implemented, as time goes on, as younger and newer employees join the city's workforce, our pension costs will naturally start to go down as a percentage of our budget. So I want to end on a kind of positive note. Um, so last time you were on, we talked about the respite center and some of the issues there. I was, you know, kind of braced for a lot of community pushback last week when the respite center came back on and it seemed like the Davis Manor neighborhood was going to rebel. And what happened was very different um, than what I was expecting. Uh, even among the people living in Davis Manor, they were kind of split on the issue. There were some people that were very concerned there are some people that are concerned about specific issues that 
can and probably should be mitigated. Uh, but there were others that were very supportive of the idea of the respite center, even at their location. But then community-wide, it was overwhelming. I counted kind of four to one uh, the people that clearly supported the respite center versus people that opposed it. Um, wasn't expecting that. Um, so maybe you can kind of end on a positive. Yeah, I, I would say I think in, in the opening to this, I think you included the respite center as one of these brush fire items. And I would say the respite center is part of a, of a long-term realization at the council level that we need to do more. And the respite center represent represents sort of a tangible sort of aspect of that. And we still have to do more. We still need to figure out a way to increase the supply of places to spend the night. Right now, we, we rely on the interfaith rotating shelter, which they do a, a very fine job, but we need some additional capacity. And so there's a few things going on there. In terms of your specific question about the public comment and sort of the, uh, the public engagement around this issue, I, I will say I was heartened by it. You're correct that uh, the neighborhood where this area, uh, the respite center will be opened, we had voices in strong opposition, but we also had voices in strong support. And I think that's a real testament to people realizing that we have people who are experiencing homelessness in our town already. They're here, they exist, and right now, we don't really have a great system for dealing with the challenges that they're facing. And by having an actual well-run facility will improve the lives of those people who take advantage of that facility, but I think we'll actually improve the lives of the, the neighbors who are having to deal with some of the externalities of having um, homeless folks who don't have resources available. I mean, we ha you were there, you heard people complaining about people pooping under the trees and the bushes and the trash. Oh, well, wouldn't a natural response be to open up a restroom so people don't have to do that? And so, um, but yes, to your point, I was really impressed with the number of people who came out in support of it. And it was very actually heartwarming. I, I, it, it really made me feel good uh, about the community we live in because they were focusing on the bigger picture and also focusing on the fact that these are people. Number one, they're people. And wouldn't it be nice to treat people like people? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think you hit on a key point. I mean, and I've had this problem downtown just having kids. There aren't a lot of bathroom options, especially once you get out of uh, the main part of the day. I mean, you literally have to kind of crash somebody's restroom if you're walking around downtown. And so that that's an issue. And if you're a homeless person and you don't have a toilet, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, especially in the middle of the night when, you know, the park bathrooms are closed and uh, there are no businesses open. Um, and so people say, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're defecating everywhere. Well, where do you want them to defecate? Uh, so, so that, you know, seemed like an issue that uh, the city, you know, I, I think has 
recognized uh, by approving the the bathrooms that they're going to put in uh, across the street. But, you know, just common sense. Yeah. I, I think what is going to be really important about this respite center, and I, I do think that many of the people, many but not all, many of the people who expressed real concern about the location, I think once they see that by having this well-run location where people can get in touch with services, whether those are mental health services or whether they're services to sign up for benefits they're already entitled to, they'll, we'll see a change, I think, in terms of some of the impacts that we're all feeling uh, around this issue. And so um, it did kind of seem a little bit like a brush fire in terms of the, hey, it's going to be here. No, it's going to be there. Oh, what are we going to do? But I I think really it's part of our long-term realization and understanding that we need to provide some resources. And so the daytime component is step, call it step one, uh, and step two will be hopefully this spring where we're able to find some overnight capacity. All right. Well, that is our show this month. I wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Uh, thank you. This has been the Mayor's Monthly on the Davis Vanguard with Brett Lee, the Mayor of Davis. Thank you and have a happy and safe New Year.